Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Saturday, March 11th, and today we are catching up on all the crazy news, which any other week should not have needed to wait till the weekly recap for you to hear. But before we dive into that, a quick note. There are two ways to listen to The Breakdown. You can hear us on the Coindesk Podcast Network, which comes out every afternoon alongside other great Coindesk shows, or you can listen on The Breakdown Only feed, which comes out a few hours later. Wherever you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, I would so appreciate it if you would take the time to leave a five-star rating or review. It makes a big difference. All right. So guys, listen, as I was prepping this, I was still kind of reeling from the news that Silicon Valley Bank has failed. Maybe it will have sunk in by the time you're listening to this, but at the moment, I think that people are really kind of underestimating it still. I've barely begun to wrap my head around potential systemic implications, but just in the startup scene, it's still so significant. We're in a moment where it is now extremely likely that some startups will live or die on the basis of whether or not they banked with SVB and whether or not they got their money out. Brad Hargreave summed it up like this. He wrote, Silicon Valley Bank closure and receivership is going to have a massive impact on the tech ecosystem. SVB was not just the dominant player in tech, but were highly integrated in some non-traditional ways. A few things we'll see in the coming days and weeks. One, SVB was incredibly integrated into the lives of many founders, not just their startup's bank and lender, but also provided personal mortgages and other financial services, a whole mess for FDIC or eventual buyer to unwind. Two, any uninsured balances at SVB, those above 250 k are in jeopardy. FDIC plans to pay them out, quote, as it sells the assets of SVB. Lots of startups exclusively banked with SVB as this was a covenant of their debt. CEOs yesterday faced a hard choice. Pull your deposits and go into default on your venture debt or risk losing everything if the bank failed. Many chose to hold tight as SVB's outright failure seemed outlandish. Now they may not be able to make payroll next week. Unpaid wages pierce the corporate veil, so boards are incredibly sensitive to employing workers they may not be able to pay. Expect mass layoffs later today, Monday at latest. And given the weak fundraising environment, a number of startups have been reliant on venture lenders, e.g. SVB, not aggressively pursuing amortization of debt or triggering defaults for covenant foot faults, e.g. cash balances. How will FDIC handle this? Mass defaults? Having run a startup through the global financial crisis, this is the first thing I've seen since that that is even vaguely reminiscent of that time. Total cluster Now, just to give it some balance and a sense of what might transpire over the weekend, I also wanted to read a thread from Bob Elliott, the CIO at Unlimited. He writes, The FDIC has taken SVB in receivership and will manage its resolution. This has happened hundreds of times over the last decade, and there is a well-tested game plan. The bank closes Friday, and folks will not have access to their deposits over the weekend. During that time, the FDIC will figure out whether the bank will be fully wound down or sold to another bank in whole or parts. We will learn more soon on that. Either path will result in insured depositors having full access to their 250 k on Monday. Then the FDIC has already said it will make an initial payment for uninsured deposits next week, as well if it is in receivership. That's a positive sign. If the bank remains in receivership and wound down, additional payments are made based on the asset sales that eventually come. The best path is to find a buyer this weekend for the assets and transfer the deposits and assets quickly. It is notable that the bank was halted before the FDIC closed it at noon. This suggests that the FDIC was already there and ready. Suggest the FDIC and Fed already have a good sense of what is going on at the bank and have run the numbers. Nothing is surprising to them and they likely have already done some resolution work. Overall promising, but by no means certain. Odds are we will all learn a lot more over the weekend. 
The Fed and the FDIC will want to instill confidence in the market and limit knock-on impacts before the futures open on Sunday night. It'll be a long weekend. Feels like fall of 08 a little, but with much less panic. These regulators have had 15 years working on this. There's a lot more expertise and experience. The stakes are better known. All that is a likely positive for how this gets resolved to SVB, depositors, and the system. Anyway, there will be a lot more to discuss on this next week, but I do now need to use part of the weekly recap to cover some of the truly huge things that in any other week would have gotten their own show. And let's start, obviously, with the news from Thursday night out of New York. On Thursday evening, New York State Attorney General Letitia James filed a lawsuit against KuCoin. She accused the Seychelles-based exchange of operating an unregistered securities exchange accessible to New York residents. The lawsuit had been brought under New York State's Martin Act, which is a 1921 law that gives the Attorney General powers to investigate securities fraud and bring both civil and criminal actions. In addition to the claims of offering securities for sale without the required registration, the Attorney General also claims that KuCoin was operating as an unregistered commodities broker-dealer and that they failed to respond to subpoenas. Now, at this point, you will know that I am very much burying the lead because the three examples of securities offerings that they gave were, one, interest-bearing accounts in the form of the KuCoin earned product, no surprise there, Luna and UST tokens again, no real surprise, and, this is the big one, Ethereum tokens. Yes, this is a lawsuit accusing Ethereum of being a security. Now, we'll get into what those arguments are in just a second, but there is a little bit of nuance that's actually worth explaining here. So these tokens are also claimed to be commodities, which is defined extremely broadly under the Martin Act as any foreign currency or any other good article or material. As for their classification as securities, the Martin Act definition is investments of money in common enterprises with profits to be derived primarily from the efforts of others, which is essentially the same as the Howey test at the federal level. It's likely that both commodities and securities definitions are being argued as a matter of legal strategy, i.e. to avoid the lawsuit failing if token classification is clarified by the SEC or the federal courts. In other words, it may be legal strategy more than a meaningful attempt to define the tokens by the attorney general. But still, it's obviously a big deal for this lawsuit to define Ethereum as a security, and three of the 28-page filing is dedicated to arguments for why. Which honestly, ironically, is kind of gratifying after having the SEC say that everything is a security forever without defining why. Now, most of these three pages cover the same points that have been put forward over the eight years since the Ethereum ICO within the crypto community. Central to the claim is the existence of a common enterprise standing behind Ethereum, which the filing identifies interchangeably as both the Ethereum Foundation and the developers of the network. Quote, ETH's development and management is largely driven by a small number of developers who hold positions in ETH and stand to profit from the growth of the network and the related appreciation of ETH. The filing points to the Ethereum Foundation as having conducted the 2015 ICO, quote, as a means of promoting the development of the Ethereum blockchain by paying expenses incurred by developers, paying for legal contingencies, research, and further development. It also notes that both the Ethereum Foundation and Vitalik Buterin personally are believed to have retained a significant quantity of ETH. These arguments obviously echo the concerns around the pre-mine of Ethereum, quote-unquote, making it a risk of being labeled a security as compared to Bitcoin. The filing also refers to the transition of proof-of-stake, claiming that, quote, Buterin and the Ethereum Foundation played key roles in facilitating the recent fundamental shift. The filing argues that one Ethereum developer said his team was, quote, granted permission by the Ethereum Foundation to work on the merge. This was something quickly refuted on Twitter, but that's not really the point of where we are right now. The filing stops short of talking about proof-of-stake consensus as a form of dividend, but notes the fact that, quote, ETH holders can now profit merely by participating in staking. Now, beyond the existence of a common enterprise, the lawsuit also sets out to argue that profits are derived from the efforts of others. To that end, the filing states that the Ethereum Foundation's website says that many ETH users, quote, see it as an investment similar to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. The filing also references the implicit promises surrounding deflationary monetary policy that were present from the beginning. 
Quote, the ICO documents included representations that ETH production would dramatically slow over time, resulting in ETH becoming increasingly scarce and thus more valuable. It also adds that, quote, the Ethereum Foundation claims on its website that users of Ethereum see it as a digital store of value because the creation of new ETH slows down over time. While avoiding making comparisons to a dividend, the lawsuit claims that, quote, since transitioning to the proof-of-stake consensus, the value proposition has altered significantly because possession of ETH translates directly to profit potential by earning staking rewards. Now, a lot of crypto Twitter said, hey, this validates the idea that the transition to proof-of-stake turned Ethereum into a security, but that's not really the argument the Attorney General is making. Instead, the NYAG seems to be using the merge simply as another example of the Ethereum Foundation's continued control over the protocol and its development team, as well as a clear example that the source of profits for Ethereum investors is not from individual effort, but rather the efforts of developers in providing a staking yield. Now, the key wrinkle in this case is that the lawsuit is only against KuCoin. No one representing Ethereum or Luna is listed as a defendant. This has been a common recent litigation tactic of regulators. It was seen in the SEC's insider trading lawsuit against a former Coinbase employee, which listed 10 small-cap tokens as securities, as well as the SEC's objection to the Voyager bankruptcy plan. In the Voyager case, the judge expressly rejected the SEC's argument that it was enough to assert that Voyager's native tokens were securities without going through the due process of bringing those allegations in a specific court hearing. This case is somewhat analogous. Allegations about the Ethereum Foundation and Ether status as a security have been made without affording anyone the standing to defend those claims as a party to the lawsuit. The biggest difference here, again, is that the Attorney General has at least provided legal analysis of their claims rather than making the assertion and then moving on. Still, Jake Travinsky of the Blockchain Association raised these due process concerns, tweeting, Call me crazy, but I think if an enforcement agency wants to accuse a person of breaking the law, they should bring an action against that person, not some random, unrelated third party who can't or won't show up to defend the case. I agree entirely that if they really wanted to have this fight, they'd go after one of the many other more obvious targets. Coinbase, Consensus, the Ethereum Foundation itself. But I also don't believe for a second that this action was done in the dark, or that it wasn't approved, signed off on, etc. by other antagonists in this environment, most notably Gary Gensler and the SEC which means there is some other game being played here. If I were a betting man, I might think that this is an opening salvo to see if the fear of Ethereum being labeled a security gets anyone to delist or take actions along those lines. In other words, it's a shaking of the coconut tree. On a more legal level, it's probably an attempt to get some summary judgment because Lord knows KuCoin isn't going to show up and defend itself. Anyway, as you would expect, there was a fair amount of Bitcoiner I told you so as I'm on Twitter, but... I found myself in the Alex Gladstein camp when he retweeted the ETH news and said, It may not happen, but best be prepared for a now-they-fight-you phase in America, where authorities try to ban Bitcoin mining and declare everything else an unregistered security. Alex's point, of course, is that just because this didn't represent them going after Bitcoin does not mean they like Bitcoin. And more to the point, does not mean they will not go after Bitcoin, even if it's on a different access. Within minutes, literal minutes of this tweet, we got news that the U.S. Treasury Department has proposed a 30% excise tax on power supplied to U.S. crypto mining facilities. There you go. Anyways, a provision of the department's Green Book, which is a list of tax proposals and explanations for the president's budget proposal, would create a phased-in excise tax on electricity used by companies, quote, using computing resources to mine crypto. Companies would also be required to report their annual electricity usage as well as the mix of energy resources used. The 30% tax would be phased in at 10% per year over the next three years. What's more, the goal of the tax is explicitly stated as reducing the amount of mining machines in the U.S. Quote, 
The increase in energy consumption attributable to the growth of digital asset mining has negative environmental effects and can have environmental justice implications as well as increase energy prices for those that share an electricity grid with digital asset miners. Digital asset mining also creates uncertainty and risks to local utilities and communities, as mining activity is highly variable and highly mobile. An excise tax on electricity usage by digital asset miners could reduce mining activity along with its associated environmental impacts and other harms. Now, for this to go through, both houses of Congress would need to pass a budget that included this provision. And it's highly unlikely that that actually happens. But it is a clear indication of the Biden administration's view on the energy use of crypto mining. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, the most important conversation in crypto and Web3, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, brand leaders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code BREAKDOWN to get 15% off your pass. Visit consensus.coindesk.com or check the link in the show notes. Troy Cross gives a pretty clear point on what this means. He writes, 30% is a de facto ban, end of the mining industry in the U.S. if it were to happen. Parentheses, it won't. Bitcoin itself wouldn't care. Bitcoin-related emissions, they'd go up. Jerron Mellerud, an analyst at Luxor Mining, agrees, saying a 30% excise tax on electricity used for Bitcoin mining would render a significant share of the U.S. mining industry uncompetitive. If this is implemented, the mining industry will move elsewhere. Dennis Porter, the head of the Satoshi Action Fund, which is getting legislation passed at state levels all over the country, says, A 30% tax on miners would be unfair and targeted discrimination. It would effectively kill Bitcoin mining in the U.S. Imagine if we put a 30% tax on internet companies in the 90s. It would have ensured all the jobs and economic growth occurred outside the U.S. Zero X Fubar writes, Feel so disgusted. This is anti-American authoritarianism. An absurd degree of misguided central planning that will wreck any semblance of functionality in an already crumbling country. People are free to use electricity however they want. Bob Burnett, the CEO of Barefoot Mining, said maybe not for long. Quote, I've said several times publicly that this is one attack vector on Bitcoin, but everyone, even non-Bitcoiners, needs to fight this tooth and nail. Creating different rates for power consumption based on usage is a massive infringement on privacy, and it sets a precedent for the government to make moral judgments on energy use. If we let this cat out of the bag, everything from your microwave to your hot water heater becomes fair game for a similar tax. Now, there are also other industrial sector implications as well, with the most obvious one being AI. Nick Carter writes, AI bros, I want you to watch the proof-of-work debate very carefully. The playbook they're running to harass Bitcoin miners under the guise of environmentalism. Phony academia, sycophants in the press, and opportunistic politicians. They will run it on you. Are you ready? You think they'll just stop with Bitcoin? Because GPU farms rendering pornographic waifus have so much more social utility? Buckle up. In their upside-down world, all electricity consumers need to ask the state for permission. All resources are zero-sum. No matter how many clean or additive your energy sources are, it's all fair game for political attacks. And right on cue, less than like 12 hours from when Nick wrote that, Bloomberg published a piece called Artificial Intelligence is Booming. So is its carbon footprint. Still, bringing it back to crypto, I thought that this point from Dystopia Breaker was really, really salient and something to leave us with. They write, I'm pretty sure that U.S. regulators don't care about, quote, pushing the industry offshore. Because they don't see it as an industry, they see it as crime, and pushing crime offshore is good. I tire of seeing this line of defense because it doesn't work. It presupposes that the regulatory bodies understand what crypto is trying to do or its value proposition. They mostly don't, and that's the problem to solve. 
Like imagine making this argument about poker in 2010. No, you're pushing the industry offshore. Yeah, that's the goal. It's bad and we hate it and we don't want it here. The only workable solution I can see is grassroots action, making it politically unviable to ostracize crypto tech. We're far away from that. And so my friends, that is where we are this Saturday, reeling from the second biggest bank failure in American history, dealing with the designation of Ethereum as a security, and now a proposed 30% Bitcoin mining tax on top of all of that. Trust me then when I say that I truly, truly hope you are somewhere with your family, touching grass, having fun, and getting prepared for the fights to come. Until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.